The following program does not necessarily represent the views and opinions of Reality Radio 101, its advertisers and sponsors, or its listening audience. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to the Urban Forestry Radio Show, here on Reality Radio 101. In this radio show and podcast, we learn about fruit trees, permaculture, arboriculture, and so much more. So if you love trees, and especially fruit trees, or if you're interested in living a more sustainable life, then this is the place for you. I'm your host, Susan Poisner of the Fruit Tree Care Training website, OrchardPeople.com. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy the show. Welcome to the Urban Forestry Radio Show with your host, Susan Poisner. To contact Susan live right now, send her an email in studio101 at gmail.com. And now, ladies and gentlemen, right to your host of the Urban Forestry Radio Show, Susan Poisner. As as home or small-scale growers, it's exciting when we can plant and grow rare or unusual fruit trees. Heirloom apple trees come to mind. There are literally thousands of different cultivars. These varieties have different flavor profiles, and each one will look and taste unique. And some are easier to grow than others. Growing different and unusual cultivars is also great for another reason. It boosts biodiversity in the world of apple trees and biodiversity strengthens the ability of the genus to resist stresses like diseases and pests and even changes in climate. But sometimes you specifically do not want to plant rare fruit tree varieties. Today, we're going to learn about an heirloom peach tree that's been growing in southwestern areas of North America for hundreds of years. These so-called southwest peaches are still grown in small native communities in parts of Utah, New Mexico, and Arizona. And so my guest on the show today is Reagan White-Salusi, Extension Assistant Professor of Agriculture and Natural Resources at Utah State University. And Reagan is working hard to protect this endangered variety from extinction. I will be chatting with her in just a moment. But first, I want to hear from you. If you email us a question or a comment during the live show today, or even if you just email us to say hi, we will enter you into today's contest. This month's contest prize is a book called Micro Food Gardening, Project Plans and Plants for Growing Fruits and Veggies in Tiny Spaces. It's by Jennifer McGinnis and it's valued at $26.99. So to enter the contest, all you have to do is send your email right now or during the show to instudio101 at gmail.com. That's instudio101 at gmail.com. And remember to include your first name 
and where you're writing from. I really look forward to hearing from you. So Reagan, thanks so much for coming on the show today. Thank you for having me. We're so glad you're here. And I wanted to ask you how you first came to learn about these Southwest peaches. Yes. Um, so I started down a path of trying to identify what, what career field I wanted to go into. Uh, once I decided that uh, my initial career program, which was actually a business school, was not the best fit for me, my I had a one-to-one heart talk with my father and he said, weren't you go learn about agriculture, bring back a lot of the knowledge that, uh, that is starting to die off in our communities. And one thing that he also brought up with that was the discussion of the peaches that our people had grown for hundreds of years. And so I decided to take that, um, with, uh, like a back thought in my mind as I started, on the track of uh, learning about plants and agriculture and um, attending Utah State University and uh, going through their plant science degree program, that's where I started to take a lot of next steps into finding and rediscovering who I was and uh, a lot of uh, who our people are and how we connect and tie into the land through a lot of our food system. So you talk about who your people are and who are your people. So what is your background and were you very familiar with your culture? Yes. Um, so I'm, I'm half Navajo. I, another uh, word that is most recognized for is uh, Diné, which means the people. Navajo is actually a term that was uh, given during a lot of the, the tribal raids and, and conflicts of meaning enemy by other tribes. So because the Navajo people raided a lot of other uh, tribal communities, they were they were given that name Navajo. Um, but Dinet is what we call ourselves as a people. Um, being that we have our four clan system, um, our, our communities are based off of a uh, maternal pathway. So when a man and a woman marry, it is that the man takes up the, the, the woman's side of belonging and, uh, and home practices. And even through our clan system, it follows the woman path. Um, so I am Nakai Dene'e, which means Mexican clan. Uh, my mother is, is, uh, is, half, uh, is part Spaniard and part Native American. Um, but, and then also I was, uh, born for my father's clan, which is Senjikini, which is the honeycomb, um, or cliff dwelling, uh, clan people. And then we, um, also identify ourselves by our paternal, uh, our, my maternal grandfather's side. So that is, uh, my mother's dad, who is, uh, what we call Bilagana or Anglo. And then, um, my last, my fourth clan is my father's uh, paternal grandfather, and he's uh, Toto Chinkney, which is the Bitterwater clan, and it's one of the uh, first four original Navajo clans uh, for the Navajo people. What an incredibly rich history. And I understand that there are actually stories within your history of these peaches, and they come from your father that he remembers these peach trees or harvested them as a child. Can you tell me a little bit about that? 
Yeah, so my dad, um, up until the age of eight, he grew up strictly on the reservation in Chanto, Arizona. And he remembered going into a lot of these areas with his grandfather and um, and his parents where they would go and they would harvest peaches during harvest time. And a lot of these areas are canyon areas. Uh, Shanto Canyon is one where they had a lot of fruit trees. They had their gardens down there. My dad remembers stories of uh, doing sheep herding as a young boy with his siblings. He has 10 other siblings. And, um, and they would go out at the beginning of the day and take nothing on them but uh, a tortilla in the morning and maybe have some coffee. And they would go and herd sheep for the whole day. And so they had to know where their water was. They had to know where a lot of things were. Meanwhile, mom and dad, my, my grandparents were, um, my grandmother was taking care of the younger siblings, and then my grandpa was taking care of the garden while the kids were herding the sheep. And so the gardens and the peaches and, and all of that, making sure that everything had water. And, and so my dad, a lot of the memories is um, just to recall and start asking him questions of, what are the traditional management practices? How do we water them? You know, uh, when was the fruit ripened? All these things, I asked him questions, and so it was bringing back a lot of thoughts that he never really considered because up until the age of eight uh, is the, the full experience that he basically got a lot of the um, experiencing fruit harvest and partaking in how they would preserve the fruit. Um, that was that was a, a very young point in his life, so it was almost digging back into cobwebs of his mind as to what it, what did we do? What did my parents do? What did my grandparents do? And so um, it was through him that he helped me through the research that I did uh, to the point where I've been able to complete a master's um, uh, program through Utah State University. And he supported me the whole way, taking me into these areas that he remembered where fruit orchards were being produced and um, which relatives actually grew them. And where orchards used to be and there's no longer a single remain of them left over in a lot of these areas um, such as Shanto Canyon where he grew up and where he said there was an abundance amount of fruit trees there's no longer any fruit trees growing in that canyon. That is incredibly sad so there this was so much part of the life and the fabric of life for the community then you start seeking out these orchards and did you eventually find some or how did you manage to find the last remaining trees? Um, so, yeah, we, we did find some. Uh, it was through, again, a lot of my father's um, exploration into the Navajo tribe um, specifically that we uh, went into Navajo mountain area into some of the most rural areas. Um, it can take about uh, it's probably about 30, 40 miles back in towards the mountain. And if you look at the aerial, aerial map of, of the canyonlands around Navajo Mountain, it's just very vast. The canyons can reach up to 100 feet in height. And then you come down onto these growing plains where a lot of the crop production was done, where a lot of the, sh the grazing was done for, for livestock. Um, and then even further down, in some cases, there are washes that are another 50 to 100 feet below those plain areas. So the geography is so rugged um, and the areas of these production systems are so remote that um, only the, the most traditional elders continue to grow these, these crops. And 
and continue to do agriculture in the traditional way. Um, a lot of a lot of these um, relatives that we met along the way, um, or local Navajo residents that still grow these peaches, um, a lot of them have passed on now. Even even after the past couple of years of completing my research, several more of them are gone, and so it's just a matter of identifying who can take up the trait again and start growing them. But um, it was a very hard process to try and find and identify uh, where original orchards would be located. Um, the one orchard that we found in Navajo Mountain is one that uh, one of my great grandfathers actually planted back in the 1860s is what they say during um, the time when the Navajo went on the long walk. He he was resilient enough and um, was able to hide out in the canyons around Navajo Mountain area and uh, resist being and going uh, to Bosque Redondo with the rest of the Navajo people. So he took, wow. he was able to take care of the lands. He was able to plant fruit trees. He was able to keep our family safe and isolated, hidden in these remote canyons that um, even today to take a motorized vehicle down, you're most likely going to, going to get stuck. And so um, lots of times, like when we would go down, we would take ATVs down in the areas and go down in, into these canyons and drive in, in washes and waterways to get to these orchard spaces. It sounds like an incredible adventure. So I'm trying to imagine inside my head, after this entire quest of yours, what was it like the first time you actually saw the trees? What was it like the first time you tasted the fruit? The first time I saw trees was actually in Canyon de Chez. Um, at that point in time, I was, I was at a thought process of, is this possible? I, I continue to have um, troubling ideas with, with um, understanding how old these trees were and um, what's, what's being told and done in a modern sense. So trying to merge both both different worlds, I guess. And so the first set of trees that I came across was uh, from somebody in Canyon de Chez that still grows them. Um, she's actively always living in the canyon um, throughout the growing season. And um, she was very skeptical to help me uh, just because she did not want these to get into the wrong hands. She wanted, she didn't want the plant to be misused. And um, I agree completely, and after trying to have a lot of uh, trust built between our our um, the the time that we had spent together was it was a short amount of time. Um, she had given me some seeds, and I was able to see where the trees were growing. And at that time, I was still very novice in my understanding of how unique and different these trees were. Uh, by the time I started growing out the seeds that she had given me and um, started to have those trees, I started to identify a lot of different uh, uh, unique visual uh, traits that they do have just in the tree itself. And um, and around the time that we started to get fruit off of them, I also that's when we came across the orchard in Navajo Mountain. So the feelings that I've had every time that we discover and find a place that has the original fruit that we knew we grew, um, I start to get um, overwhelmed. I, I have a lot of gratitude. Um, I'm, I'm often praying with a lot of thanks 
uh, to Heavenly Father saying thank you for leading us here. Thank you for guiding us here. Um, because a lot of what I've been able to do, I know, has been uh, with support from a higher power, not only from my family, but definitely a higher power. Um, it's definitely a, a, a purpose of my life to to go forward and to preserve these trees. That's incredible. That's so beautiful. So you got the seeds at first, I guess you never managed or at some point, there must have been a point where you managed to see the trees when they were actually fruiting and taste the fruit. Is that how it unfolded? Um, so at the time that I got the seeds, the trees weren't fruiting yet. Um, the, the fruit weren't ripening. I think that year it was actually a bad year. So I never, I think in the whole time it had taken me seven years from the start of this project to graduating and defending my thesis, um, it had probably taken at least three years in the first um, part of my research before I actually tasted a fruit. Wow. Um, a lot of times that we would go and explore, the trees were, um, it maybe had been a bad year and there was no fruit set on them, but there was some seeds. And so it was very limited. The elders were saying we're having a hard time getting fruit because the weather is so different nowadays that we don't know if we're getting fruit or not. Um, when we came across the orchard in Navajo Mountain, it was just kind of like a very wide eye opener of the reality of what it actually was. And my father will say the same thing is he feels that a lot of memories just kind of came back of what was kind of left behind in the process of going into school and, and adapting to modern society. Um, so it's almost just remembering and, and knowing that the stories of my grandfather are real, um, bringing back and being able to reconnect with, with our history, um, with our ancestors, uh, with what, what is still alive and in existence, even though it's very few in numbers, it's, it's something that we had, I don't, I don't even, I don't know if I can really even explain it, all of the, the overwhelming emotions that poured in at the time of, of even tasting the first fruit. <laughs> wow. Beautiful. We have a couple of emails. We have one email here. Let's see. It is from Dawn. I don't know. Oh, Dawn is in zone five North us. I don't know exactly where, but Dawn writes, hello. Is it hard to grow peach trees? What type of climate do you need? Can someone in zone five North us grow them? Thank you. Now I know these trees we're talking about are a little different from the kind of peach trees you'll get at a garden center, but what's your feedback for Dawn? Um, okay, thank you for your question, Dawn. So these peaches, you know, um, if you've ever been to the Southwest and the Navajo communities, um, even any of the other uh, tribal communities in the Southwest that, that also grew these peaches, the climate is, um, it's high desert. So our elevation is, uh, ranges from around 5,000 to 7,000. A lot of places where these peaches have grown have been in the like 5,000 foot elevation range to 6,500 elevation range. Um, the soils in a lot of these areas, since they were grown in, in canyons, is the, the canyons were a little bit more sandy, so they had well-draining soil. Um, they can do okay in clay, but it's 
a little bit harder to grow them as with any plant if you have uh, more abundant clay in your soils. In these types of systems growing in the canyons, they had access to groundwater. The water table was fairly high. There was a lot of active uh, natural springs coming out of the, the washways where they would grow them, or even if it was a little bit higher than the wash, um, there was a lot of, uh, still a lot of water in the soil uh, running through the rocks that the, the canyons, what they call bluff uh, rock structures, which are a sandstone. They're very smooth. Um, structures. If you ever see pictures of like Monument Valley or um, with the Red Rock, um, it's a lot of structures like that and just kind of form those into canyon areas and having some flat, uh, flat plain areas just below those, those massive structures and you've got your gardening areas. And so what this kind of created is like, is a, a really unique microclimate where in the springtime that rock face from the bluffs would warm up and radiate heat through the night to, um, and it would almost encourage or improve the temperature conditions around those fruit trees as they were blooming. So you had more possibility of getting fruit on a yearly basis um, rather than losing it all to a late frost. Um, so these are some of the conditions that, that you can expect in our area. They do grow. I have some planted in, in northern Utah right now um, as a result of my research. I have 45 trees up north right now, and they're doing very well in a loamy type soil. Um, as long as you have the well draining aspect, anything that a fruit tree needs is what these trees will need as well. The one unique thing about these trees, though, is we, we, have, uh, we have studied and found an indication that they are more drought tolerant than a lot of your other uh, peach cultivars that are uh, current. I, I'm not sure how to compare them to heirloom varieties, but these ones are for sure a little bit more drought tolerant. They're more adapted to the climate, the various changes in temperature. Um, one thing that I say is we can have a 50 to 60 uh, degree change within a 24 hour period from, from the high uh, the high temperature point of the day to the coolest point in the night. So because we don't have a lot of structures that kind of retain the air and cause inversions uh, like northern Utah does, um, the heat just ends up radiating off in the desert climate here. So that's, so the, that's these, the type they, of growing conditions that we have here. So they tolerate real extremes then, these particular types of peaches. Extreme they, they very much so do. Wow. Yes. So you got these precious seeds, Reagan. You got the seeds from the growers. They trusted you enough to give you the seeds. And it sounds like you planted them out in various orchards. Is that correct? What, how old are the trees now that you've planted? I, I have one orchard that they're planted in. I've donated a few to Utah State University. All of these trees um, were planted uh at different times. I think the first set that I that I had planted was in 2015. Um, so they're six, seven years old. And um, some of the later ones are a couple years younger than that. They are all in full production now at this point in their life. And, um, and so the next thing that that we are doing is, is assessing their fruit quality. And um, so far with with the results of my thesis and the genetic analysis that we did, they are uniquely um, 
inbred within their own regions. So I worked with three different tribes. I worked with Navajo, Hopi, and Zuni. And we were able to get seeds from, from Hopi and several more seeds from Zuni. And, and what we saw is that with as isolated as these trees were in the canyons that they were grown, Canyon de Chez peaches are inbred in their own community. Um, and they don't show very much um, crossing over into those that we collected in Navajo Mountain. And the same thing with those that are collected in, in Hopi. And we worked in Zuni, and I'm hoping to get some seeds from Zuni. Um, there's there's a few orchards there, but a lot of them, um, again, same instance, a lot of them have passed on. There's a few good trees that we're kind of helping keep an eye on, and we're hoping to get some good seeds off of that. But it's, it's going to be the same story that we've seen in all of the other areas. So let's go back to what I was talking about in the beginning. We as growers are encouraged to um, try different types of cultivars when it comes to apple trees. You know, don't just plant golden delicious, red delicious and Macintosh. There's lots of those out in the world. That's not great biodiversity. I bet you, you have people who are knocking on your door saying, I'll take some of those seeds, I'll plant them. And that's a good thing because then we are going to save this particular type of of, um, plant. Why is that not a good idea? So at this point in time, um, a lot of a lot of the outreach that's coming on is very good. It's very um, it's a blessing to know that there's a lot of people that want to help, that want to grow this. Um, at this point in time, because there's very few, um, we're trying to protect what we have now. We're trying to protect the growers that are still growing them. A lot of them are still elderly. A lot of them continue to stay isolated. Um, one one family that that helped us they're they're related to us by clan um but they um they never had a day of schooling in their life so they grew up very traditional they still everything was traditional this is this is their life basically um and so to to take and to spread and to um potentially um make this come out in abundance at this point in time it's it's just a matter of having some respect and reverence for, for what's going on right now to have some consideration that it's not widely available. With time, we're hoping to get it to that point where we can have it in abundance in our communities again, have, have orchards, um, spaces that are isolated from other peach cultivars. So that way we make sure that they will always remain pure and isolated, and we will always have that seed source available for not just our community, but for those that do want to grow it. Um, sometimes when you spread plants in a, in a very fast um, manner, it, uh, with these trees being so isolated, we don't know what their disease resistance is. Um, we don't want to introduce something or make it come out in so much abundance that we would be encouraging pathogens to be able to start populating themselves within our local orchards or our historic orchards, if that, if that makes sense. That makes total sense. And I guess the other thing that comes to mind is when we're uh, propagating apple trees, like heirloom cultivars, they're actually grafted trees. They're not grown from seeds. So we know that the DNA of the tree is exactly that 
rare cultivar, like a white, uh, yellow transparent or something like that, a certain unique, wonderful cultivar, every yellow transparent apple tree will have the same kind of apples uh, or wealthy apple tree or whatever. The difference here is that the peach trees are grown from seeds and the seeds will have some sort of cross-pollination with nearby trees. And if these trees are not isolated, then they could be so assimilated and mixed with regular peach trees that they'd be gone. Is that true? Yeah. Yes, that is that is a very good point to make and to add. That makes sense. Um, so I we have I was a... trying to get to that, but you explained it very, <laughs> very clear and straightforward. So thank you. Okay, thank you. All right, we got a really good question from Katie. I like this que this question. So Katie says, what are the basic differences between the peach trees that Reagan is talking about and conventional peach trees bought at a garden store? Um, so a lot of your conventional peach trees, um, when you get to, to the breeding background, these peaches are selected for their size. So you want a marketable size that's manageable in the industry. Um, that looks big. You want something with vibrant colors, right? So their peel has some red on it. Um, it's just got a really unique, uh, full color of life that looks very appetizing, right? The next thing you want is when you actually taste the fruit, you want it to taste really good. You want the sweet, the sugars to be there so that way you get some mouthful of sugar. Um, sometimes the thought of having a really juicy peach is of interest. Then there's the, the actual like pillars of the peach fuzz. So some peaches have a lot of peach fuzz on them. And that's not necessarily appetizing. It's kind of more of a bother because you can have allergies. Um, you can have more of like, if you don't wash enough of it off after you wash your, your fruit, um, you can start getting a lot of itching on your mouth, potentially inside your mouth. Um, so it just depends on what a majority of the market wants. And that's what the peaches in the grocery store are selected for is the best overall look and appeal and quality uh, storage factors. When it comes to the peaches that we have, we did not select them for that. Um, we, we selected our plants and allowed them to grow naturally to where now they are very adaptable in our climate. We don't have to uh, water them a lot. There's not a lot of uh, modern management practices that go into play with these trees as far as fertilizers and, and compost. Um, there's a few things traditionally that we talk about that we do um, but as far as things like pruning and uh, thinning blossoms, we don't do any of that. Um, the fruit itself is very small. Um, it's about the size of an apricot. The most common fruit that everybody talks about is that they're white flesh. They are freestone uh, peach. And the ones that I've tasted, especially the ones out of Canyon de Chez, is um, the peel is a little tart. Uh, the fruit is not a vibrant red. It has a little bit of a blush on the, the surface where the sun touches it, but on the underside, it's still uh, mostly green or yellow peel. So it's not very like visually appealing to eat, but when you taste it, the peel is tart and the flesh inside is what I've tasted is very sweet. Um, it may not be as sweet as what you get in the grocery store, but to, to me, it's very sweet. I don't eat a lot of sugar. I don't eat a lot of sweets. So to me, it's, it's, um, it's very good. And it just kind of has a really good complimenting flavor. Um, the other thing that's unique about these peaches is uh, like a lot of our traditional foods, because we did not have a refrigeration, refrigeration system is we dried all of our food source to store it throughout the winter 
to get us through until the next season or for years down the road. So with uh, like, like our corn, uh, our beans, everything's dried. The peaches are the same way. So whatever was not able to be eaten fresh at the time, we would split them in half and lay them out on the sandstone surfaces and kind of that, that terrain that I explained to you with the canyon lands and let them sun dry for the, um, for a few days. And then we would take them dried and store them in, in our sacks, in our pots and put them in those storage bins. And then when we wanted to cook them, we would rehydrate them in like a stew. Um, sometimes we would uh, utilize those peaches and put them um, into uh, desserts or have them as like um, a bread spread. Um, they would be mixed in with like corn cakes, which is a traditional traditional cake that we did. Um, very unique. The other thing is the tree and their growth habit is um, in itself. I have I have a, a kind of a funny story. I the first set of trees that I was growing, we had them in a greenhouse with uh, with my advisor's crops that they, they do the research for, um, for fruit production for the state of Utah, for all the producers in, in Utah. And so sometimes we have like a variety of melons and peppers. There's choke cherries in the greenhouse. And so one of the plants that was in there was peaches that I was that I was growing from seed. And uh, one of my advisors comes into the greenhouse and he's looking at everything, just checking on everything. Cause I was, I was interning under them and helping them with their research at the same time of, of carrying out my research and going to school. And he goes, what are these? And I said, these are the peaches. And he goes, peaches. And I said, yeah, these are the Navajo peaches. And he goes, Oh, they don't look like peaches. And so when they're, the funny thing is these trees, their leaves are almost a little bit more flat. They don't have a very, uh, a very, tight curl like like you see peaches always have and so it's just very unique it's almost as if they're more of a mix of a peach and an almond like like a peach almond hybrid which is something that is very possible and it happens um if you have those two crops together so the fruit being very small like an apricot everything about it is just to me it's very unique they're their own type of plant and and trying to see even though they are peaches um they're still very much so different in my mind it's such a perfect way to describe why why you need to protect them you know because once they're out and the the genetics are mixed they're gone forever right um you we've got another question here mick from toronto writes and you answered this so beautifully do these peaches have a different taste than store-bought peaches so it sounds to me like they've they are probably not as sweet because our supermarket peaches are just bread to be like candy and they are and I love peaches <laughs> and I love sweet stuff <laughs> but uh, do you agree it's just it sounds to me like it's a totally different thing yeah so um they you know they can have a, a pretty good sweetness to them um so they the way that sugars are measured um through fruit is through what they call a refractometer and so they'll take the um the the bricks uh soluble sugar a percentage and they'll get a rating so a lot of a lot of peaches that i've seen um i think in the grocery store they're in the uh mid 20 range 20 percent is sugar of that juice content that you that you're eating with our peaches they may be a little bit more like a tart cherry um but still a little bit more sweet so take out a little bit a little bit of the tartness in it but just keep the sugar and so we're around like an 18 percent is what the the 
the peaches that are grown here in the Southwest um, oh, average yeah. too. So that's good. So you get, I mean, it doesn't sound like it's that, you know, tart. It's still yummy and tasty. Um, it is delicious. so yummy and tasty. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, let's take a minute. I'd love to have here a few words from our sponsors. And there's so much more I want to talk to you about, about protecting the ways that you are uh, planning to protect these beautiful peach trees and the future for the trees. So Reagan, are you okay waiting on the line for a minute? I sure am. Okay, great. So you are listening to the Urban Forestry Radio Show and Podcast, and it's brought to you by the Fruit Tree Care Training website, orchardpeople.com. This is Reality Radio 101, and I'm Susan Poisner, author of the Fruit Tree Care book, Growing Urban Orchards. And we'll be back right after the break. Hey gardeners, it's JJ here, your Aussie gardening expert. We all know young, newly planted trees need to be watered deeply and regularly to kickstart growth. But correct irrigation just isn't as easy as you would think. Sprinklers waste bucket loads of water and they wet the leaves and branches which can result in the spread of nasty fungal diseases. At Greenwell, we have a system to direct the water deep down into the soil to the roots of your trees where it's needed most. But watering takes time. So municipalities across North America, Europe and Australia are now saving time and money by using Greenwell water savers for newly planted trees. So why don't you? Dig the easy to install recycled plastic rings into the soil around your young trees. Then each week, you can fill the rings with up to 50 litres of water and that water filters deep down into the root system where it is needed. Think of Greenwell water savers as your insurance policy for young trees. Learn more at greenwellwatersavers.com. If you're thinking of planting fruit trees and you're looking for a wide selection of cultivars, consider Wiffle Tree Nursery. Our 62-page full-color catalog includes over 300 varieties of fruit and nut trees, berries, grapes, and other edible perennial plants. Not only that, in our catalog, we help you through the selection process with tips and advice about all aspects of growing fruit trees. You can learn about adding nitrogen-fixing plants, rootstock choices, and even about planting a windbreak if you have a windy site. We're a one-stop shop as we sell fruit tree care books, pruning tools, organic sprays, and natural fertilizers. We're located in Alora, Ontario, but we can ship all over Canada. Call us at 519-669-1349 to order your catalog. That's 519-669-1349. Wiffletree Nursery. Call us today. If you're listening to this show, you are passionate about fruit trees. But do you care how your trees are grown? Silver Creek Nursery is a family-owned business, and we grow our fruit trees sustainably using only organic inputs. 
we stock a huge range of cultivars, like Wolf River, an apple tree that produces fruit so large you can make an entire pie with just one apple. We also carry red-fleshed apples, like Pink Pearl, as well as heirloom and disease-resistant varieties of apples, pears, apricots, cherries, and more. We ship our trees across Canada, and we can also supply you with berry canes and edible companion plants to plant near your trees. At Silver Creek Nursery, we grow fruit trees for a sustainable food future. Learn more about us at silvercreeknursery.ca. Welcome back to the Urban Forestry Radio Show with your host, Susan Poisner, right here on Reality Radio 101. To get on board right now, send us an email. Our email address is instudio101 at gmail.com. And now, right back to your host of the Urban Forestry Radio Show, Susan Poisner. You're listening to the Urban Forestry Radio Show and Podcast, brought to you by the Fruit Tree Care training website, orchardpeople.com. This is Reality Radio 101, and I'm your host, Susan Poisner, author of the Fruit Tree Care book, Growing Urban Orchards. In the show today, oh my goodness, it's been such an interesting topic. We've been talking about the history and uh, the reality today of Southwest peach trees. These are trees that have been growing in isolated parts of North America for hundreds of years. Their stewards are the First Nations communities in parts of Utah, New Mexico, and Arizona. And these trees are incredibly hard to find today. They're also pretty amazing. They can grow even in really hot and really dry climates. And so, of course, if you live in a climate like that, you might want to consider growing them. But if you heard earlier in the show, my guest suggests that that's not a good idea, at least not yet. She is Reagan white Salusi, Extension Assistant Professor of Agriculture and Natural Resources at Utah State University. And she's working to protect the tree from becoming hybridized and lost forever. Now, before we continue the interview, I would love to hear from you. Do you have any questions or comments about what we're discussing in the live show today? If you do, you can email them to us at instudio101 at gmail.com, and we'll enter you into this month's contest. The contest prize is a book. It's called Micro Food Gardening project plans and plants for growing fruits and veggies in tiny spaces. And it's by Jennifer McGinnis. It's valued at $26.99. So to enter the contest, send an email right now with your question, a comment, or just write us to say hi and send your email to instudio101 at gmail.com. And be sure to include your first name and where you're writing from. So that's instudio101 at gmail.com, and we really look forward to hearing from you. So, Reagan, in the first part of the show, we chatted a little bit about the history of the South 
Northwest Peachtree. Now, I understand First Nations communities have their lore that says that this tree has been there forever or a long time. And yet there are other people who say, no, no, this tree was brought from somewhere else, maybe China, which is where many peach trees or all peach trees uh, originate. What are your thoughts about that? Um, it's a really, really hard thing to digest. I don't think any one person can uh, make decisions, but I am happy to tell you the stories that we have. Um, so in working with the various tribes, uh, going all the way back to our people's origin stories, uh, not knowing how far long ago, but um, we've come into what we call the fourth world. So we have three other worlds that our people have been in before we are in this world today. Um, and in coming into the fourth world, taking, taking what the, the Hopi and the other Pueblo tribes, uh, such as Zuni, um, Acoma, Laguna, uh, their emergent stories are out of the Grand Canyon. And when they came out of the Grand Canyon, part of those stories is that the peaches were growing in the canyons there as they had come out. And so it was a fruit that had been in abundance in the area, naturally growing. Um, some of some of the, the things when talking with elders that I interviewed for this project to understand how we took care of them, uh, ceremonial uses, uh, importance that these peaches are to our communities. Um, some of them said that uh, in Canyon de Shade, as they would eat peaches, they would throw a peach pit out and it would grow in between a rock crevice where the water would flow, but it would get stuck. And so there may be some sediment buildup in those crevices, but it would grow out of the rock naturally on its own and not have any assistance from, uh, from man to um, help it grow and produce. It grew, um, if you've ever seen a juniper tree, which are very drought tolerant plants, uh, there's a lot of occurrences where you will see them growing in that kind of a fashion, growing out of a rock, growing through the fractures in the rock um, to sustain and establish themselves so they can survive. So the peaches had uh, have a have been told to have a unique characteristic. Even today, it is still seen that that happens where they voluntarily grow. Um, that is that is recognized as almost uh, like a wild uh, uh, growing trait in a sense to where the peaches may be considered as, as a land race type of a peach. Um, and so with that, that, that's just one little, little thing that we talk about. We also have a lot of um, in-depth ceremonies in regards to the peaches. So a lot of our traditional prayers and, um, and songs that we do throughout the season revolve around the peaches in some instances. Um, the peach itself has its own prayers and ceremonies associated with it that are not done, um, that are not done, basically, in, in a lot of terms. Um, in Hopi, they actually will start their spring dances. Um, and revolve the dance duration to occur uh, through the duration of the peach blossoms, the peach and the apricot blossoms. And so um, that's, that's a practice that has been done 
for nobody knows how long. Um, the the ceremonies and the, the prayers that the Navajo people do, uh, my understanding is the origin of some of these is um, is far back more than than we know, basically, or what what we know time to tell. And well, it's in. Oh, so sorry. just taking that, it's it's so interesting um, to see how it's impacted our culture, how much embedded it is. It's it's not as uh, commonly announced, but we do have the peaches included in a lot of these prayers and songs that are also inclusive of the corn and the beans and the squash. Um, melons is another the native plant, the animals, but we, you know, the peaches are included in that, um, which is something that's not, not readily discussed. Everybody talks about the three sisters all the time, but a lot of the other crops are not necessarily recognized um, as widely. So you're painting a picture really of a, a tradition that sounds like it's been around more than what, 400 years or something? When were peaches supposedly brought in from uh, China? Or like, I think it was the 1600s that they were introduced, the traditional domestic peaches that we eat and we get in the supermarket. Yeah, um, so the, the Spaniards, when they came in in the 1600s, um, well, actually, the, they, started, they started maneuvering into like Florida before and um, they did bring peaches. Um, there's no disagreement that they didn't. Uh, there are trails and pathways of Spanish peaches that have been introduced, um, uh, especially when they came into Mexico area. Uh, that's where a lot of um, archaeologists or um, individuals that study the foodways um, believe all the peaches in America to have traveled through from Mexico and then distributed before the Spaniards had gone into the Southwest that they were, they were already growing there basically when the Spanish arrived and that's written in Spanish documents. Um, today it's just, it's just accepted that the Spanish introduced them and that's what it is. That's what literature states. Um, there's, there's no discussion, um, or ability to understand, uh, or to, to try and recognize that there could be a possibility that First Nations people in their arrival in the Americas also had lots of different food sources with them that they potentially had brought over um, and had been growing here for a, for a long amount of time. So, um, so go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, so the parallel I see is a few months ago, I did a show on our North American native apple trees. So you could say that apple trees came from originally from Kazakhstan, and yet we did have our own native apple trees as well. So it's a possibility that there were native peach trees, and maybe one day with genetics we'll discover the truth. Absolutely. Um, I, I actually, um, yeah, uh, I guess that's, I mean, there's no disagreement there. Um, it's something that if, if it is true that um, we can see and show in the genetics work that we're continuing to do that um, that these are a recognized land race and they've been here for, you know, previous to colonization periods, um, it would be almost something that would, that would give back to our communities. I feel like it would entice a, a sense of pride um, 
and soft perseverance to continue preserving and growing these peaches, um, recognizing that they are they are just as precious and they are just as much our people's uh, food to help sustain us and survive as any other food source that we have. Um, and in an instance, more so because of the history that is surrounded by the peaches and, and the destruction that has inevitably taken place with these uh, through the times of the U.S. Um, the U.S. government establishing itself throughout North America. Incredible. Well, sadly, I can't believe it. It's we've only got a few minutes left for the show. We've got to do our contest prize. But I just want to ask you: you have now you're now pretty much devoting your life to protecting this beautiful tree. How are you going to do it? And what do you see its future is going to look like? Um, I'm hoping to, um, I'm right now identifying several different partners. Um, I'm identifying partners that are uh, financially, I guess, more secure at the moment, and then also wanting to identify uh, growers locally in the Southwest area, where I know these trees are going to thrive and become abundant to help preserve and provide these seeds back to the local communities that are in desperate need of growing them. Right now, there's so many elders that I talk to or so many, so many people, and they come up to me and they say, do you have the peaches, you know, and I, and I tell them, yes, I do. I'll, I'm trying to create a list of everybody that wants one and needs one. And, and one day I'll be able to say, here you go. I, I have enough now. And um, still protecting the elders that grow these and have their living off of these to not deplete their source, their life um, in asking and, and over asking, but being able to give back uh, with due process um, that these will become in abundance for, for our people and, and everyone in the area that, that need to grow them. Um, so that's, that's kind of the look ahead is establishing isolated orchards, ensuring that the seed purity is guaranteed um, and uh, continuing the genetics to understand these peaches, including them in the, uh, the entire peach genome worldwide. And, um, and hopefully, you know, we find something very valuable with these trees that we can um, have enough support to continue sustaining them that they never die. That sounds like a great vision. I, vo I vote for that. That sounds good to me. <laughs> Thank you so much. Well, it's time now to find out who won the prize. And it's interesting because often in this show, we'll get lots and lots and lots of emails. And I think I know why today was a quiet day. People like to listen to you. I just really enjoy listening to your passion and the magic that you have around you when you talk about these peach trees. I think you've got people speechless today. So we do have, I think, at least three people that entered the contest. And Gary, can you tell us who the winner is? Yes, Reagan, I'm going to shake the bucket and you tell me when to stop. Okay, are you ready? I am ready. Okay, here we go. Listen in. Okay, stop. Stop right there and let me reach in. And let's see. The winner is Don from Zone 5. Yay, Don. Don, I think, was our first question today. And congratulations. You won the book. 
we will email you so we can send you the details and tell you how to get your copy. But that's wonderful. So thank you, Reagan. Thank you. <laughs> what a magical conversation. So I hope thank you will you. come on the show again one day and give me an update. Yeah, I look forward to it. It's been, it's been a great privilege to, um, to be asked to speak um, on this show today and in the audience that is present. Uh, I do appreciate everything and, and the time and consideration that, um, that everyone takes away from this conversation. I'm, I'm always happy to answer more questions um, with the time that I do still have a job to, to answer to. But um, this, is, this is definitely a lifelong uh, goal of mine to accomplish for my people, um, for any community to have some form of local sustainability and have this crop be a part of that process, whatever it may be. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show today, and we will see you soon. Bye for now. Thank you. Okay, that was such a magical interview. Wow. I really enjoyed talking to Reagan about the Southwest peaches, and that's the end of the show today. Amazingly, the time has passed very quickly. So we have another episode coming up next month with lots more information about fruit tree growing. If you missed part of this show, you can go to orchardpeople.com slash podcast and you can listen back to this show. You can listen to other episodes as well, including the episode that we did on native apple trees. We've done lots of different episodes on lots of topics. So hopefully you'll go back and check it out at orchardpeople.com slash podcast. You can also go to my website, orchardpeople.com to read articles, to take courses on fruit tree care, and uh, we will interact on that website as well. So thank you so much, everybody, for tuning into the show today, and we will see you again next month. But for now, goodbye and have a great month. See you next time. been listening to the urban forestry radio show on reality radio 101 to learn more about the show and to download the podcast where i cover lots more great topics you can visit orchardpeople.com slash podcast this show is broadcast live on the last tuesday of every month and each time i have great new guests talking to me about fruit trees food forests and arboriculture if you're interested in learning more about growing your own fruit trees or just about living a more sustainable life, go to orchardpeople.com and sign up for my information-packed monthly newsletter. If you like this show, please do like our Orchard People Facebook page. You can also follow me on Twitter at @urbanfruittrees. Thank you so much for tuning in. It's been wonderful to have you as a listener, and I hope to see you again next time. Thank you for listening to the Urban Forestry Radio Show with your host, Susan Poisner, right here on Reality Radio 101.